0: This is a passage of scripture which I have preached on in the past, and there are lots of ways in which you could preach on this. But the more I read this passage, the more afraid of it I become. Um, The deeper and the greater the sense of the holiness of God, the glory of God, the nature of our human foolishness and folly, really stands out. It's a story that raises lots of questions, but it's one that I think the bulk of what I want to do this evening is to read, so that you get to hear it. Um, you can follow it, if you want, um, in Second Samuel. Let me find the page, uh, so that if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, the Bibles that are in the pews in front of you, if you're going to use one of those, you'll find the story on page 313. And it actually encompasses three chapters of Second Samuel. It's uh, chapter 10, 11, and 12, and we really need to take all three chapters to get the full weight of the story and what is going on here. So what I want to do is I want to make a couple of comments before we read it, just by way of um, introduction to help in the listening. I want to read it and then go back and just highlight a couple of things from it. And then I want to draw one key lesson out of it. There's a huge amount of material in this, but I just want to to draw the one key lesson. The first thing I want to say about these three chapters is the very structure of the text itself is important. And the reason why we're going to read three chapters is important. It begins and ends with an account of David and Israel's involvement involvement with a a community of people called the Ammonites. Um, And you'll see when we read it that the beginning and the ending with that clearly marks the limits of this particular passage of scripture, that the compiler of uh, this information, this uh, account has deliberately pulled these together so that we can see. If you go to the book of Chronicles and look for the same story in the book of Chronicles, the middle two chapters, chapter 10 and 11, are missing because that was not part of the purpose of the person who was compiling Chronicles. He doesn't include that part, but the rest of it is there. So the issue of what happens with the Ammonites provides a context for understanding what is going on in the life of David, King David, at this particular point. And it's David's life that we're interested in. So it's a very important part of the story. Second thing I want to say simply by way of introduction is a little word about the characters who are involved. And one of the first characters we'll meet in this is Joab. And if you've been here over the last number of weeks, you'll have picked up some of the background on Joab. Uh, Joab uh, was a nephew of David's. It would appear that his mother, Zariah, was one of David's sisters. And David's relationship with Joab is quite fraught. Joab, in many ways, is, is intensely loyal. He's commander of David's army, he has a huge responsibility but he's a pretty vicious individual and a pretty ruthless individual individual. Um, you remember the story of Abner who was in charge of the armies of the north the ten tribes of the north and how uh, Joab and Abner were constantly uh, at war with each other as the two major armies how uh, one of Joab's brothers pursued Abner to kill him and Abner warned him not to and Abner ended up killing Joab's brother which started a blood feud really When Abner was bringing the ten tribes of the north to Jerusalem to David and and had negotiated really a peace settlement and was bringing them under David's kingship uh, Joab is distressed at this whether he feels threatened or not I don't know but the idea that this blood feud may not be settled because David was about to accept Abner and make Abner commander Um, Joab kills him he he betrays the trust that had been established between David and Abner and he, he tricks Abner He calls him back and he simply runs him through with a sword as he takes him to the side to have a word with him. Joab knew the politics of what was going on, he knew the implications of what was going on, but utterly ruthless. And in the context that follows there, uh, King David points out to the people around him after having cursed Joab's household uh, that these sons of Zariah, these nephews of his, Joab and his brother, were too powerful for him. You read that in 2 Samuel 3, 39. So there's a very fraught relationship which continues to develop between David and Joab. It's a very important uh, polarization of power within Israel. The story of David and the story of Israel at this point is not as simple as it appears on the surface, and certainly I have discovered not as simple as when I used to teach it in Sunday school. Bathsheba is going to feature in this. Bathsheba, we know very little about her as an individual, as a person, other than obviously she was very beautiful, a very attractive woman. But we do know a little of her through her father and her husband, who will be named in the text here. And it would appear that her father, uh, Eliam, was the same person who is referred to later on in 2 Samuel chapter 23 and verse 34. You might like to just take a quick nip over to see that. It's an, it's an interesting Um, section of Samuel where it's um, highlighting some of the key people who were involved in in David's army and uh, in David's government and in 2 Samuel 23-34 I think it is (coughs) um, well verse 23 first of all of chapter 23 talks about um, David's bodyguard and, and who was in charge of the bodyguard Uh, And there, in verse 34, is a lamb. So we have good reason to believe that Bathsheba's father was a member of David's bodyguard. Um, If you look at verse 39, we know that for sure Bathsheba's husband was a member of David's bodyguard. Verse 39 says, and Uriah the Hittite. There were 37 in all. These were the key Uh, soldiers the key people in David's uh, security network and it's important to bear that in mind as you hear this story so we don't know much about Bathsheba as a person but we know that both her father and her husband were key members of a very elite group of only 37 people who were closest to David uh, in his kingdom bearing that in mind Let's just hear the story as it's given to us in 2 Samuel chapter 10. If you want to just listen, feel free to just listen. If you want to follow in the text, you'll find it in the church editions on page 313. <clears throat> in the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died and his son Hanon succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me, so David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite nobles said to Hanun, their Lord, "Do you think David is honoring your father by sending men to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them? to you to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it. So Hanun seized David's men, shaved off half of each man's beard, cut their garments in the middle at the buttocks and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men for they were greatly humiliated. The king said, Stay at Jericho till your beards have grown and then come back. When the Ammonites realized that they had become a stench in David's nostrils, they hired 20,000 Aramean foot soldiers from Beth, Rehob, and Zobah, as well as the king of Maccah with 1,000 men, and also 12,000 men from Tob. On hearing this, David sent Joab out with the entire army of fighting men, the Ammonites came out and drew up in battle formation at the entrance to their city gate, while the Arameans of Zoab and Rehob and the men of Tob and Macher were by themselves in the open country. Joab saw that there were battle lines in front of him and behind him, so he selected some of the best troops in Israel and deployed them against the Aramaeans. He put the rest of the men under the command of Abishai, his brother, and deployed them against the Ammonites. Joab said, if the Aramaeans are too strong for me, then you come to my rescue. But if the Ammonites are too strong for you, then I will come to rescue you. Be strong. Let us fight bravely for our people and the cities of our God. The Lord will do what is good in his sight. Remember those words. Then Joab and the troops with him advanced to fight the Arameans, and they fled before him. When the Ammonites saw that the Arameans were fleeing, they fled before Abishai and went inside the city. So Joab returned from fighting the Ammonites and came to Jerusalem. After the Arameans saw that they had been routed by Israel, they regrouped. Had had Arameans brought from beyond the river, they went to Helam with Shobach, the commander of Hadad-Ezer's army, leading them. And when David was told of this, he gathered all Israel, crossed the Jordan, and went to Helam. The Arameans formed their battle lines to meet David and fought against him, but they fled before Israel, and David killed 700 of their charioteers and 40,000 of their foot soldiers. He also struck down Shobach, the commander of their army, and he died there. When all the kings who were vassals of Hadad-Ezer saw that they had been defeated by Israel, they made peace with the Israelites and became subject to them. So the Arameans were afraid to help the Ammonites anymore. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah didn't go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why did you not go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? Surely as you live, I will do no such thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat (coughs) among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. So Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Besheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall And some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as the other. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife, and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, The man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword and... Of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives. And give them to one who is close to you. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied. The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted. And went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground. But he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they thought while the child was still living we spoke to David but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked? Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went down to his own house and ate. And at his request, they served him food and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. Meanwhile, Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and captured the royal citadel. Joab then sent messengers to David saying, I have fought against Rabbah and taken its water supply. Now muster the rest of the troops and besiege the city and capture it. Otherwise I will take the city and it will be named after me. So David mustered the entire army and went to Rabbah and attacked and captured it. He took the crown from the head of their king. Its weight was a talent of gold and it was set with precious stones, and it was placed on David's head. He took a great quantity of plunder from the city, and brought out the people who were there, consigning them to labor with saws, and with iron picks and axes, and he made them work at brick-making. He did this to all the Ammonite towns. Then David and his entire army returned to Jerusalem. I'm sure many of you are familiar with that story and have heard it before. It's been described as the turning point of the book of Second Samuel. I think it is a remarkable account uh, to find in Scripture the blatant honesty that is portrayed here about Israel's greatest king. And after all, what is Jesus if he is not son of David? as the scriptures constantly say. To find such honesty is startling, and it raises lots of questions for us. As we just reflect on the story, let me throw a few other things in just for you to, to think about in all of this. This begins in Second Samuel chapter 10 with um, David thinking, I will show kindness to Hanun as his father showed kindness to me. What we have seen, if you remember, last week in Chapter Nine, with uh, Mephibosheth, the last remaining member of Saul's family, was David expressing uh, an, a, a faithful love to Mephibosheth for the sake of Jonathan, uh, who had been such a close friend of his. The, the term that is used of that kind of faithful love in the Old Testament great deal is a term called hesed. It's just a, a, it's a Hebrew term, but it describes the nature of God's love to His people. It's a faithful covenant love. It doesn't get broken. And that's the term that's used to describe David's uh, interest in Mephibosheth for Jonathan's sake. Um, It's the same kind of term actually that is used here in regard to Hanan and the Ammonites. I mean David is, is willing and interested. The Ammonites seem to be generally under the control of Israel at this point. Uh, So the the relationship is not simply one of equals. They are a community of people who are under David's control. But David is actually interested in acting faithfully with them and demonstrating the same kind of uh, faithfulness to them as he's willing to express within Israel. And we see portrayed for us in chapter 9 and chapter 10 David the faithful. David the person who tries to be what God would want him to be. Acting faithfully faithfully in covenant loyalty to those who are near to him and those who are further away. That's the picture we're given in chapter 9 and at the beginning of chapter 10. You read what happened. I mean the, the level of humiliation that these men experienced was very severe in its context. You would all laugh your legs off if I arrived here with only half of my beard. What you would expect me to do if I got messed up with the clippers and accidentally cut one half of it off, is you'd probably expect me to take the rest of it off. And then you'd all just laugh that I don't have a beard, but that would be the end of it. In this context, for them to come back without beards would be just as shameful as to come back with half a beard. And you can just imagine the humiliation of these men as they're kicked out of the city and their clothes are cut off at the buttocks so that their private parts are exposed to everybody and they're just being made a laughingstock of the city. But yet we see a kindness and an understanding demonstrated by David. He doesn't bring the men back. He doesn't want to cause them any embarrassment. He's very angry about the situation. So he says, stay in Jericho until your beards grow back, and then you can go back. He's saving face for them. We see more signs of faithfulness here with David. We see him sending Joab out. And as you read the account of what happens there, you'd almost get the feeling that the Ammonites are going to get away with it. They hire the Arameans and others. Joab deploys the army in two parts. He takes on the uh, Arameans, the mercenaries, and uh, they flee. And the Ammonites, it says in the text there in chapter 10, that they went back into the city. And it looks for a minute or two like that's it, you know. Because Joab goes back to Jerusalem, and the Ammonites are safe within their own city. And then it's the Arameans who are a bit miffed about having been beaten by Joab. And chapter 10 finishes there with David coming out and taking on the Arameans and, and really giving them quite a defeat. And here at the end of chapter 10, we have David acting faithfully to Mephibosheth, David wanting to act faithfully to foreigners, David taking care and interest in his own men <coughs> who have been put to shame, and David going out to lead his army. The model king. Could you fault the man? Does everything right does everything by the book and then the text seems to say to us at the beginning of chapter 11 that little sentence, that very short sentence but David remained in Jerusalem indicates that something is not quite right here and what we discover is that the pursuit of the Ammonites is simply called off because of the weather as would have happened in that context and they were going to go after the Ammonites when the time was right But he sends Joab and David stays back in his palace. And immediately you begin to get a sense of David beginning to lie back and enjoy his conquests. Rather than take his leadership responsibility and be at the head of the army. And everything that we read about what happens between David and Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet is all set in the context of David staying at home while the army is out doing the business. <clears throat> when it comes to the relationship. Between David and Bathsheba. I confess. That I have many unanswered questions. About this relationship. And I can never really know the answers. Was Bathsheba aware. That David might see her. Given her father's position. And her husband's position. She was probably no stranger to the court. Certainly her husband and her father. Were not strangers to David's court. Um, her bathing her ritual cleanliness was um, what you would have done as the text implies there after her menstrual period was over it was part of her that's what it talks about her, uh, the, uh, the ceremonial element of that so there's a very public statement being made here on uh, David's in view of David which says I am ready for sex and is that what Bathsheba was saying is there some sort of history between these two that had never really gone quite this far Bathsheba isn't recorded as raising any object, objection to all of this. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. But she certainly knew that her father and her husband were insiders in the palace. So Bathsheba had a fair idea of what was going on here. And the whole thing immediately has this sordidness about it. It's just unpleasant relationships are going to be compromised left right and center and then a palace where everything gets brought to the king this is not a case of david out for a stroll seeing bathsheba nipping into the house quickly having a quick affair and going back home again this is david sending a servant to get her this is her being brought into the palace it might have been night time but that's not going to go unnoticed she goes back the next morning this thing is public I'm quite sure that the palace leaked like a sieve. And the whole business is just messy. And then you have David sending for Uriah. And, you know, there's no question what's going on here. Uriah's return of itself would not necessarily be suspicious. After all, he was one of the elite. So to send him back as a messenger would be, of itself, perfectly acceptable. I've always been of the opinion, you might have a different opinion, I've always been of the opinion that Uriah was suspicious of David right from the start here. Whether the palace leaked, whether he had an idea or Lincoln I don't know. But there's no doubt that the, the language that David uses is euphemistic here. You know, go down home and wash your feet. It's two men and men talk, you know. It's nice to see you back, Uriah. Go home. You have a nice wife there. Away home and enjoy yourself tonight you'll be going back to the fighting soon enough. That's essentially what David is saying. You can just say it, you know, man to man. And Uriah doesn't go home. And Uriah won't go home. And I think what Uriah says to David, which is what seals Uriah's fate, is his death sentence, is his direct comment to David about the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents My master Joab and my Lord's men, referring to David, are camped in the open fields. Where are you? I think that's partly what Uriah is saying. What are you playing at? And there's no way he's going to go down home. Whether or not he knows. Whether or not he has heard the scandal and the gossip. Because it certainly wouldn't have been private. And there is a rebuke to David here. There is an opportunity for David here. But he doesn't take it. And David who was faithful to Mephibosheth and David who was faithful to a foreign king and David who was concerned about men losing face because half their beards were cut off now gives instructions to Joab who he couldn't really trust all that well to have one of his own bodyguard murdered. And what's going on here? How does this happen? How does this happen with people and, and their feelings and their emotions and their choices? I think one of the really tragic things for me in this passage is that as we have seen in recent weeks, David cursed Joab for shedding innocent blood. Do you remember that? He put a curse on the house of Joab. He actually commands Solomon to make sure that Joab does not go down to his grave in peace and Solomon will have ultimately Joab slaughtered at the altar because Joab is involved in another plot. So, I mean, David has cursed Joab. He has said publicly that Joab and his brother are too strong for him. They're men of blood. And he's going to employ Joab to kill for him. How does that happen? I find that one of the most staggering and disturbing parts of this whole story. Imagine you were Joab. Imagine you were Joab and you received that note from David. Well, because of the kind of character you are, you're not going to lose too much sleep over it. But what goes on? I, I, in my mind, I see Joab going back to his tent where his brother is and saying, will you hear this? David wants Uriah killed. What do you think of that? What do you think's going on there? Hmm? Bathsheba? See, that's why I think they probably all had an inkling. You know Joab doesn't raise any objections here. He doesn't go back and challenge David, as he will do on many other occasions. He doesn't say, "No, this is wrong." He just takes the order. Mm. He's got the dirt on David. And I think this whole thing is cynical and arrogant and wicked. And the way in which Joab sets it up it's not just Uriah that dies. there are other innocent soldiers who die. They're put out in the front line. They should never have been put there. And the text is very clear that it's not just Uriah, but the weeping and the wailing and the mourning that will go on back in Judah and in Jerusalem will be for men who are dying because the king signed the death warrant of one of his own bodyguards to cover the fact that he slept with his wife. There's a very interesting turn of events which you don't get so much in the English and I'm indebted to various commentators for highlighting this. Um, There's a very interesting turn of events in verses 25 and 27 of chapter 11. Let me just get the, the text here to make sure I get this right. In verse 25, a literal reading of what David gives the messenger to take back to Joab is this. A literal reading is this don't let this be evil in your eyes now the NIV translates it quite differently and translates it more in terms of don't let this upset you don't let this be evil in your eyes is what it actually says and look at what it says in verse 27 because a literal translation of verse 27 says the thing was evil in the eyes of Yahweh and that's the turning point of this whole story David saying to Joab, don't let this be evil in your eyes. And the text says, this was evil in the eyes of God. And from verse 12 on, God gets involved. And you've heard the story, and it's all very straightforward from that point. But it's a demonstration of the fearful judgment of God. You see, it's not just the people in Jerusalem who know what's going on. I mean, who didn't work out what was happening? How on earth did David think it didn't matter? The enemies of Israel know the story. Everybody knows the story. And they mock the God of Israel. This holy, this righteous God that David claims to follow and and, and to worship. He's actually no different from the pagan gods if David is his representative. And it is the fearful judgment of God who publicly humiliates his people. David says to Joab, don't let this be evil in your eyes. The scripture says this was evil in the eyes of Yahweh. And when God sees evil, even amongst his own people, he will expose it. It's one of the fundamental things we've got to understand about God. We're reading this in the context of what has been happening in America just in the last few days. Pastor Ted Haggard who established what is now a 14,000-member church, New Life Church in the States, um, has been removed from that post by his church following the accusations of a a homosexual um, prostitute who claims that uh, he paid him for sex and that he paid him to get drugs for him. And it would appear from the statement on the church website uh, which I was reading today, that they have accepted that the bulk of this is true. And when I hear it, and when I think about it, my immediate reaction is: this is disastrous. You know, the church doesn't need this in America. Um, it's all come at the time of the elections, when evangelicals are been seen to have political influence. And all this, but forget about elections and all this. The church doesn't need this kind of scandal, this kind of thing. I mean, it just discredits the gospel. But the question is, who exposes it? The biblical principle is that it is Christ who exposes this kind of thing. It's not a gay homosexual who does the exposing. I mean He's the voice. He tells the truth of a situation. Or partial truth, or whatever it happens to be. But the book of Revelation makes it very clear, in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, that it is Christ who moves amongst the churches. It is Christ who warns the churches that if there is immorality... If there is unfaithfulness, he will remove the candlestick. That's what the scripture says. It is the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, and his faithfulness to his people, who exposes his people publicly to judgment. And he sends the Assyrians, as the prophet said he would. He sends the Babylonians, as the prophet said he would. And they are humiliated, and they are carried off into captivity. And whose doing was it? God's doing. Entirely. And there is a fearfulness about this, which I think is why... I find this passage all the more disturbing. There is a fearfulness about God's righteousness and justice and holiness. And we should not mess about with it. And we spend a lot of time in, in this church, and I hope we, we spend a lot of time in this church, talking about God's grace and God's love and God's forgiveness. And that's right, and we're going to say it in this passage. But we must not run away from God's righteousness and God's holiness. He will not compromise them he would rather see the church shamed publicly than compromise righteousness and holiness that's that's what the scripture says from beginning to end from the old testament to the new testament from the prophets to the book of revelation that's the way it works and that's part of the message here there is this fearful judgment of god and there is this terrible dilemma of grace i mean why shouldn't david die it was murder why shouldn't he die? And why should the child die? What did the child ever do? Grace, because there is grace in this, the forgiving grace of God, because Nathan is able to tell David that he's been forgiven. Grace constantly raises dilemmas for us, and as Christians we should be aware of that. It raises dilemmas in the hearts and minds of many people who do not know Christ. It is outrageous. It is by human standards unfair, and grace itself is contrary to the rules of natural justice. The rest of the story we have read, and I simply want to mention that bracket at the end about the Ammonites. Joab could have taken the city. Do you remember what happened when David killed Goliath, and they moved back to Jerusalem? What is the thing that is the beginning of the end of Saul's reign? The thing he can't cope with. It is the people crying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. If Joab had taken the city, Joab would have come back to Jerusalem. And the song would have been, David has killed his thousands. But Joab has killed his tens of thousands. And Joab knew it. And for all the kinds of reasons that we've looked at last week and others, Joab gives David the opportunity to come and finish the job. David's kingship is sitting in the hands of Joab, humanly speaking, at this point. For Joab has the note, and Joab has the water supply of the city. He has everything he needs to get rid of David. And David is given the opportunity. Of coming to redeem the situation. And that is grace. Well the one thing I just want to say about this. I want to use a phrase from a commentator called Brueggemann on this. Who I think beautifully summarizes this. He says this whole story is not about adultery. That's not the key issue. The whole story is about mistaken, wrongly assumed moral autonomy. David decides he is autonomous in moral moral decision-making. He doesn't answer to anyone. He's king. I think this text has a great deal to say to all of us at any stage in history, but particularly in our context today. We are trained and taught to be autonomous individuals. We are given an education which teaches us to ask questions and work out the answers to be employable, to be financially independent. We're given so much help to do that. It's little wonder that in our society the most normal thing in the world is for people to consider that morality is autonomous as well. They can make their own decisions in that. It all fits with the way our society works. The Christian must never, ever fall into the trap of believing that you are autonomous in the moral decision-making of your life. You belong to God. God sets the standards. And God will not cover over our sin. He may forgive us. He may restore us. But he will not ignore it. And even if it brought Windsor Baptist Church into complete disrepute in this neighborhood. If there was something that needed to be exposed. It is God who will expose it. Because righteousness and holiness mean more to him. Than human shame. That's the powerful message of this story. I find it frightening. I find both the commitment of God to his glory and his holiness frightening, and I find the grace extended to David frightening. For here's a man with blood on his hands. He was given the opportunity to go on to great conquests, but is going to experience great turmoil, as we'll see in the chapters ahead it would be wrong to simply carve this up as a three point sermon it's a story that needs reflecting on it's got a lot to say as you get more and more of the background, more and more of the picture it actually becomes more and more disturbing but at the heart of this is a warning to all of us a warning to God's people of all times and all places God sees and if things are evil in the eyes of God he will deal with them The book of Hebrews talks about our God as a consuming fire. And it's something as Christians that sometimes we're not terribly comfortable with. But it's true. I would encourage you just to take time to reflect on this passage yourselves. And when you do so, to take time to reflect on Psalm 51, which we'll just read now and bring our service to a close. Let's just stand as we read this together. And we'll we'll use it as something that we can use in our praise and in our worship. I'll read the first verse, and then as a congregation, will you read the second verse? I'll read the third verse, you read the fourth verse, the whole way down through the psalm, until we come to the end. It says at the beginning of this psalm, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Do not cast me from your presence, or take your Holy Spirit from me. me Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you save me from O Lord lord open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise the sacrifices of god Are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen.